Welcome to Business Books and Company. Every month, we read the best business books. Read with us so you can become a better investor, manager, or entrepreneur. This month, we read The Power of Broke by Damon John. Damon is best known as an investor on ABC's Shark Tank, but he is also the award-winning fashion designer who founded the multi-billion dollar brand FUBU. In The Power of Broke, Damon explains the strategies that helped him start FUBU with almost no resources out of his mom's house in Hollis, Queens. He then examines the stories of other entrepreneurs who started from nothing. But before we get into the book, let's introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm David Short. I'm a product manager and former consultant. I'm David Kopeck. I'm an assistant professor of computer science. And we'd like to welcome Eli Mitchell. Eli, could you speak a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks for welcoming me to the podcast. My name is Eli Mitchell. I am a management consultant by way with an industry background. And right up until COVID, I was actually living in Lagos, Nigeria. I'm excited to be joining the podcast. I haven't been reading along with you over the past year, but I've been a loyal listener. And thank you, Molson, for bringing so many strong viewpoints and criticism to each episode. I won't have the same stories about entrepreneurial experience and tales of litigation, but I do hope to channel some of your snark. (laughs) Yeah, we're really excited to have you. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on the show, Eli, and thank you so much for joining us this season. Okay, so let's get into the book. Who is Damon John? So you got into this a little bit before, but Damon was born in Brooklyn in 1969 and raised in Hollis, Queens. He began small businesses as a child, including snow shoveling, lawn mowing. He started saving money while he was working at Red Lobster and Church's Chicken and eventually bought a 15-passenger van, which he used to compete directly against the MTA bus service in Queens. So he would offer cheaper service and drop people right at their door as opposed to you know what the, the buses were offering. But he ended up having to shut that down because he kept getting tickets that were so costly it was you know undermining the the business. He ultimately founded FUBU in his mother's house, sewing the clothes himself in 1992 while he was still working at Red Lobster. He managed to get FUBU product into rap videos, even getting LL Cool J to wear a FUBU hat in a Gap ad and rap for us by us into the um, actual advertisement. And then ultimately, Puma acquired FUBU for $300 million in 2018. As Kopech mentioned before, he is best known now as an investor on ABC's Shark Tank. He also runs the Shark Group, a brand consulting firm. And this was the third of four books that he has written. So The Display of Power, The Brand Within, The Power of Broke, and Rise and Grind. You mentioned FUBU, his clothing brand. Can you tell us more about how FUBU is a unique brand and why it's a special company? Yeah, so he gets into this in the book a little bit, although I think maybe it was more in some of his other books because he doesn't spend as much time talking about FUBU as I had kind of hoped the book would go into. But uh, FUBU was, you know, stood for For Us, By Us, and it was intended to be a, you know, Black-owned business that made clothes for Black people. The way that he managed to get a lot of, you know, credibility was mostly around rap videos. He managed to get a lot of his product featured in music videos that would then be on BET. And he also actually talked about running a lot of advertising on BET because it was very underrepresented because of who Nielsen had, you know, boxes with. And so the ratings for BET were actually artificially lower than they should be. And so he could get, you know, a whole year's worth of advertising for the same cost as, you know, one ad on the Friends uh, broadcast. So anyway, it was a fashion brand. It expanded from first hats to then shirts to then hockey jerseys, and ultimately um, it shifted its focus from the U.S. market to international markets um, as its trends changed and the popularity of the 
the clothing within the U.S. that started to subside. Yeah, sure. I agree with what you first said there, which is that I wish he had talked more about FUBU and the founding of FUBU in the book. I was expecting a little more about that. I actually listened to a podcast that he was featured in a few weeks ago. And one thing that was interesting from that was he talked about at the time that he was founding FUBU, the Timberland CEO had come out and said, we don't make our boots to sell to drug dealers. And Tommy Hilfiger, Ralph Lauren were doing the same thing of essentially saying that they didn't want urban communities, urban kids, people of color, essentially wearing their clothing. And so I think he being black really saw that opportunity to serve his own market with the For Us By Us branding. That's just a a tidbit from that podcast that I thought was really interesting that didn't really make it into the book. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I'd heard the Tommy Hilfiger thing, but I didn't realize it was also Timberland Boots and uh, Ralph Lauren at the same time. So yeah, no. Uh, and you're right. I don't think he covered that piece in the book at all, though. I, I could be wrong. I did, I did not read this incredibly closely, to be honest. So tell us more about how FUBU got started, because he does get that into that in the book. He doesn't go into all the details, but he talks about what he was doing at the time that he started FUBU. And he gets into some of the challenges that he faced in terms of not having a lot of resources when he started the brand and how he overcame some of those challenges. So he literally was sewing all the clothes himself. So he started out just making hats. You know, he sold it to, to friends of his, people in the neighborhood. He then um, expanded into shirts and he used, I think it was like $50,000 to convert half of his mother's house into a factory, basically, to, to churn out the shirts. And I, I believe that was based off of um, sales that he'd done at a convention, which I think he'd also just kind of hustled his way into. I don't think he actually like had a formal booth, but he managed to like get in the door and do it sort of uh, when someone didn't show up or something along those lines. So, I mean, I, I think that the, while I, to be perfectly honest, did not love this book, I think the fundamental premise of the power of broke is definitely, you know, emphasized by himself and by some of the stories that he tells. And I do think it is a good one. So the 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 basic concept there being that having a bunch of venture capital money or a bunch of resources to throw at a, a business is actually not good for you, that you're better off starting with nothing and that you need to get customers and you need to get that next sale in order to be able to fund yourself, that that's the way that you can really thrive and succeed. That if you you know get everything on a, a silver platter, it just is too easy and you won't really succeed in the same way. Now, obviously, there are plenty of examples of venture capital funded firms that have done incredibly well. But I do think that concept of the power of broke, the um, the mindset that I need to make that next sale or I'm not going to be able to eat is like really powerful. Yeah, I think he likes calling out within the book and through his origin story that he was turned down by 27 banks in order to get a loan, which, you know, I I'm just like, how do you even do that? How do you go to 27 banks? I can't I can't even name 27 banks. Short, you probably can. And and it seems <laughs> he's like in when New he York, was, so there's a lot. <laughs> when it seems like when he when he was really at his wits' end, right? Like that's when he mortgaged his mom's house. And then he also took out an ad in a newspaper to essentially advertise that he needed a partner to fulfill the orders he had sold. So like a million dollars or something. I don't remember the exact number of orders, but I I think to short point, that's an example of the creativity that's forced on you when you have no other options, right? So to take out that ad and say, 
will anybody help me fulfill this order? I have the money coming in. I just don't have it now. There was also one other marketing mechanism that I really liked that he used, which was spray painting ads on like the roller steel gates that come down on storefronts at night. So he went to store owners and offered to clean them up and then had uh, some really skilled artists come in and paint ads for FUBU. And the store owners liked that it made their stores look nicer at night. And then it was all free marketing for FUBU. There were definitely a few examples throughout the book about how he had to hustle in order to make that next sale. I thought one thing that was really cool was also how his mom really inspired him. One thing that I thought was just a wow moment for me in the book was when his mom actually took out a mortgage so that she could spend more time with him during his high school years. She had been working three jobs and she just felt like he was getting into kind of a bad crowd and she wanted to have more time with him. So she goes and actually mortgages the house that he can not have to work one of those jobs and have more time making sure that he's on the right track. And I mean, I, I just, the dedication there between mom and son, I found really inspiring. And then another story I really liked when he was growing up was he had, he was working at Red Lobster and he actually talks about how he learned a lot doing that job because he just learned what it's like to run a corporation and try to save money through the marketing strategies and the actually amount of food that they were providing in each portion and how that inspired him to always be aware of costs his whole life. But then how he parlayed the money he made from that into a van business where he was kind of like acting as almost an illegal taxi, driving up and down Queens Boulevard, picking people up and dropping them off. And he then got so many tickets that the business became like untenable. But then he flipped that van into the delivery truck for FUBU and he just kept like flipping each time that he hit a barrier into another opportunity, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, I really liked the uh, the Red Lobster stories, too. So to go into a little bit more detail there, one was that I think they dropped it from 12 shrimp to 11 shrimp. And so, you know, you scale that across all of Red Lobster and that's probably, you know, a million dollars in shrimp or whatever that you're saving and you keep the prices the same and you know customers don't notice. And then. The other example he gave was around pricing and how I, I, actually, I guess maybe that wasn't related to, to Red Lobster, but I think he was just telling it the same part of the, the book that, yeah, it was like some paperback book vendor had gone from selling things at like $4.95 to selling them at $4.99. And again, how like that just, you know, no one really notices that as a customer, but, you know, the four cents adding up across, you know, millions of sales ends up becoming, you know, real money. So finding those little like small ways to adjust either your pricing or the 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 product that you're producing that, you know, from a customer perspective, maybe if they noticed they would be annoyed, but they're probably such small things that they don't really. And I think, I think it's been happening a lot in like the packaged goods space uh, recently. So I think a lot of the like things that used to be eight ounces are now six ounces and still charge the same, you know, price, things like that. To, uh, and then you can, you know, whatever kind of, it becomes a little bit healthier because the portion size is now smaller, the, you know, calorie counts, et cetera, go down. I was also entertained by Red Lobster because it came up later in the book with one of his examples of an entrepreneur, uh, Gigi Butler, who had worked at Red Lobster in Nashville and then used her customers from Red Lobster in Nashville to promote the cupcakes that she was founding. That was, it was something that I thought was just really cute how that pulled together the Red Lobster story again. Although I would say from that, I was skeptical because they cited Taylor Swift and Leanne Rimes as customers. And I was like, are they, are they really going to Red Lobster? 
I think it was both from Red Lobster. She'd gotten some clients for her cleaning business. And then her cleaning business expanded to where she had Taylor Swift and whatnot as like her cleaning clients. So I'm not sure if it was all Red Lobster. I think it was the combination of both Red Lobster then leading to the cleaning business and then the cleaning business being who she could could sell the cupcakes to. Sorry to fact check you. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That, That helps though with, because I was confused and now I am less confused. Maybe Taylor Swift loves Red Lobster. Who knows? I've actually never been to a Red Lobster, but I used to do digital advertising research. And uh, so Darden was one of our clients. And one of the studies I did was there used to be two separate Facebook brand pages or there was a brand page for Red Lobster. And then just a random fan had created a Cheddar Bay Biscuit fan page. And it actually had more fans than Red Lobster themselves. And so they, they, I guess, acquired the fan page and combined them in. And I, I did like a research study on, you know, how people felt about that. And mostly they didn't really care and they wanted Red Lobster to give them discounts. So that was, the, that was the result. But I, I just thought it was funny that like an independent fan had managed to get like, I don't know, it was like 1.2 million followers versus Red Lobster themselves only had like 800,000. That's incredible. I think to the point in the book that the fan was authentic right? (laughs) Having their true passion for Red Lobster as opposed to the Red Lobster corporate branding, right? Yeah, absolutely. Authenticity is definitely one of the things that that came through repeatedly in it. I think the the thing that I found about Damon John himself is that he does come across very authentic in the Shark Tank, I think. In this book, I I don't know, I'm a little uncertain as to whether he actually wrote this himself. It it does come across like as his voice, but I just I wonder if he had a ghostwriter or something. But then I forget where it is, but somewhere in the book there like he suggests that you go to like his website in order to to get like a, you know, business plan template. And so I did that, and now I just get like literally every day an email from Damon John trying to like sell me on his like business self-help courses. And it's just like, dude, you sold FUBU for $300 million. You really need to be like coming after people and trying to get their $395 for all your, your tips and tricks. I don't know. Yeah. He did work with a ghostwriter. I think it was somebody named Daniel, it was Daniel Paisner, something like that. Uh, But definitely there was a collaboration there. All right, so we've talked about basically the first part of the book where Damon John talks about how he created FUBU and some of the power of broke strategies that got him through some of the difficulties. Maybe we'll come back to some of the difficulties later on. And he kind of weaves them through the rest of the book. But then the book turns into discussions of other entrepreneurs that he's interviewed and their stories of making it through very difficult circumstances starting from almost nothing. Which of those entrepreneur stories were the most impactful on you as you read through the book? So I felt an overall challenge with this book was that there was such a huge range of these entrepreneur stories. Some of them felt very small, very genuine entrepreneurs that he had mentored through Shark Tank, which I think if you're somebody who watches the show is really interesting to see his thinking and the other side of that a little bit. But then some of them were massive or have turned massive, uh, so such as Under Armour was featured in it. And then there was one, which was Nature Valley, which was corporate. It was about the brand manager of Nature Valley at General Mills. So that was one thing that I found difficult was just there was such a wide range that it was hard to really get into any of them. I think generally for me, what resonated the most were the smaller stories. So the stories of the people that he had mentored through Shark Tank that had 
to do something very different and really had to demonstrate that power of broke rather than a few of the other examples that he talked about where I felt like he was trying to force the power of broke into the example. So for for example, with Nature Valley, the brand manager at Nature Valley, if they don't do their job well, they're probably still going to have a corporate job. So it's great that they improved the brand, but it was it felt somewhat forced. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I found them very uneven. So some of the stories really engaged me. And some of the stories I was kind of like, why are they in here? Especially the social media stars. So I think there were two different social media stars that he highlighted throughout the book. And I was wondering, why is he giving 10 pages to these people? Because they're not really overcoming a lot. It felt more like they kind of just got lucky in their lives. Yeah, it was Josh Peck and Acacia Brinkley. Yeah, especially Acacia, who did not come across to me as somebody who had some great business acumen or had made some great decisions, but really somebody who was kind of in the right place at the right time and got a little bit lucky to become a social media star. Of course, maybe that's. Maybe I'm not being fair to her because I haven't studied her whole history in detail, but it felt like a kind of an odd inclusion in the book. Yeah, it almost seemed like something that like an editor had told him to do or something that like, oh, social media is like a big thing. I mean, I think this book came out in 2016. And so I feel like the like influencer sort of concept was was relatively new at the time. And so I think, yeah, they felt kind of tacked on. And honestly, just I agree, just not very interesting. I don't know. I I didn't get like a power of broke mentality from them aside from, you know, they just posted on social media very regularly and, you know, stayed authentic to their brand. So, you know, they, they, whatever, they won't advertise things that don't line up with what they're saying. But then he also says that like Acacia Brindley is advertising for like Pepsi and McDonald's and the Olympics and stuff like that. So I'm not sure, like, I don't know her well at all, but it seems kind of unlikely to me that McDonald's is like strongly resonating with her brand. But yeah, I, I totally agree with both of you. I, I really did enjoy like the Mo, the bow tie designer who had been on, on Shark Tank, like those stories of like truly like, you know, start from nothing kind of businesses. And this was, you know, I think he was 10 years old or something when he, when he started the business and it's probably uh, 12 or something when he was on Shark Tank. Those were really fun and like were insightful. Some of the big ones, actually, I really did enjoy the the, the Under Armour story. I, I just, I honestly didn't know it. And so like the fact that he had been a college football player and then just like started the business, you know, shortly after school and then like basically just hustled around New York and found, you know, fabric that seemed like it was what he needed. And, you know, from there was able to like start selling to the schools and things like that. And that he was literally completely broke, but happened to, you know, go home and, and check his mail. And he had a, you know, $7,000 check or something in, in, in there that managed to, to keep him, you know, able to, to, to keep moving. Um, I, I found, I found that story to be, uh, you know, interesting. I would don't undersell that he was completely broke. He had taken his last check and gone to Atlantic city to try and gamble it. Right. <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> there, there was some questionable financial advice throughout. There were a few examples <laughs> like that. There was there was a lot of maxed out credit cards uh, throughout that made me wonder uh, that you know the stories from this book maybe need to be balanced with some of the more business focused advice. I I loved the Mosbo story. I I agree. I think. You know, I have not watched that on Shark Tank. I, I don't really watch Shark Tank. It would be interested to hear if either of you do and if you know of Damon John through that as well. But the Mosbo story was great because he came onto Shark Tank. And I think 
Uh, Kevin O'Leary offered $500,000 for a $3 per tie royalty. It's this cute little 12-year-old who's promoting his bow ties. And I think Damon saw a bit of himself in him and said he would instead offer a mentorship with no financing. And he said that he felt that Mo's bows didn't need more money and that more money would put them at a disadvantage. And I think, you know, reading up on that episode on Shark Tank, it seems like that was somewhat controversial, right? Some people were kind of upset feeling that he was undercutting him. But it actually seems like he's been successful. And what I was most interested to see is that if you go to Mo's Bows, he's now selling uh, face masks, which are very fashionable, face masks for children. Oh, wow. That's cool. I do watch Shark Tank. I wouldn't say I've seen like every episode or anything. I think it's been on for you know 10 or 11 seasons now. But, you know, I, I, I watch it most of the time. That's definitely where I, where I know Damon John from. I have seen every episode of Shark Tank since the first season. And I have always liked Damon a lot. I thought that he kind of provides a cool-headed balance to some of the sharks on the show who get overly excited about some of the pitches. And he kind of pulls things back and thinks about things more rationally sometimes than some of the other sharks. He calls himself in the book a lot the people's shark. I guess that's because he sometimes, I think, has more of a connection with some of the contestants. I'm calling them contestants. I guess they're contestants, right? Uh, he, he's, he feels like he has some uh, more of a connection with some of the contestants than some of the other sharks are able to achieve always. But he is definitely, I think, a what's the right word? He's a pretty compassionate shark compared to some of the other sharks on the show. Yeah, I think that definitely does come through. And Eli, just to respond to what, what you were talking about with Mo's Bows earlier, I think it was actually it was $50,000 that um, he had come in asking for. And I think he was offering like 10% of the company or something along those lines. And then, yeah, you're right. Kevin O'Leary offered to give him the money, but he wanted a $3 royalty. So Damon offered to give him advice for free, but he said he would not be his mentor if he took the deal with Kevin O'Leary also. So I think that was the part that probably led to to some people's negative reactions is like, hey, you're not going to give the kid money and you're like threatening him. You won't even let him take, you know, the 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 other deal. But that his mom actually stepped in and she said, like, you know, while Mo is the CEO of Mo's Bows, I'm the CEO of Mo. And like, we're, we're you know, not going to take the deal and we're going to you know work with Damon as a mentor. So I thought that was a, a really cool story. I love that you brought up the casino thing with the Under Armour guy earlier, Eli, because I think there's definitely some survivor bias in the stories that are included in this book. Just like there was in the book Founders at Work when we read that on the show. These are stories of the people who made it and like other people who followed these exact strategies. Some of these strategies did not seem the most reasonable, probably would not have made it. Yeah, that that part was crazy. I think it was he had thirty four hundred dollars left in the bank and he needed to cover six thousand dollars in bills. So he went to Atlantic City and he lost all of it and he literally couldn't even afford to pay the tolls on the way back, which like, it feels a little bit like, I mean, he had to pay for gas. So like, I don't, I don't know. It seems like he's probably like glossing over some of the details a little bit, but that, yeah, then by the time he did get back, he had a $7,500 check in his, his mom's mailbox from, from Georgia tech. And so he was able to, uh, to then pay those, those $6,000 in bills and keep moving forward with the company. But yeah, I do not recommend that you take your last $3,000 and go to Atlantic city to try and double it in order to cover your bills. Yeah, it's not exactly core to your business model. I agree, Kopech. I think that was one of the main criticisms that I had of the book was that it just felt like we were focusing on success. And there there really weren't many stories about failure. 
And then if we think about what the power of broke is and what Damon John is trying to say with this book, it felt like it was this attitude of, you know, the power of broke means that you have no other options but to survive and to drive success. And it seems like it puts blame on people who aren't successful. Uh, so it's a lot of stories of look at all of these people who were broke, had nothing, and were able to turn it around and be successful. And, you know, kind of the undertone of that is why can't you do that? And yeah, I agree. I think there's not the stories of the hundreds of people who fail along the way. And I think. I think what Damon would say to that is that they just haven't been successful yet and they just need to keep on pushing. But I definitely subscribe to hard work begets rewards, but that there's also usually something that's opportunistic and a little bit of luck along the way. And that just really didn't seem to be acknowledged in this. Absolutely. I think maybe the way he would pose it, though, is he's trying to be inspirational. So he's not going to bring up the people who failed because the whole point of the book is to inspire people to work harder. I think there's a great Thomas Jefferson quote. It goes, the harder I work, the luckier I seem to get. Um, And I I think that's a kind of mentality he's trying to foster amongst readers. At the same time, I agree with you 100%. Like There should have been more stories of the people who didn't make it, or at least of the people who made it, more of their failures along the way. I think the number one failure he probably brings up in the book is when the FUBU brand itself was not doing well in the late 1990s. And he said, or maybe it was the early OOs, and he said the issue was that they had lost the power of broke, which meant that I guess they had they had gotten too comfortable with being successful. But that's different from having a struggle at the very beginning, which I think there should have been more of in the book. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And the one other thing was some of the stories that he told, I'm just like, why is he even highlighting this? There was one that it seemed like it was just like a, a marketing, like a multi-level marketing scam where uh, this this woman, Lauren... Ridinger had like she was selling like weight loss supplements and like vitamins and things like that. And it was just like, I don't know, like, why are you promoting this as like the power of broke, Damon? Like, this sounds like she's probably selling like BS products. Like, I don't know. Um, I, I, I'm genuinely curious why he felt compelled to, to feature that story. Yeah, some of them felt like he just had access to certain people, right? There didn't seem to be this coherent theme. I actually didn't write down that example. I So I probably skimmed through it and probably had the same question. Yeah, I thought that was also a really weird example to include in the book. Here's somebody basically selling what was admitted to in the book being a scam product. And that's how they kind of got their first amount of capital to then do more products. And I almost felt it was irresponsible to include that example in the book. And then there's also, he talks about Steve Aoki and I think that's even maybe the first example that he gives. And it's like, you're talking about the power of broke and Steve Aoki apparently has some like millionaire hotshot dad who I guess didn't fund the business. But at the same time, he probably did have the ability to fall back on his family in the event that he had failed. And so I don't know, like, again, it was like kind of an interesting story. I didn't know the story of Steve Aoki and, you know, setting up a, a record label when he was 19 and, you know, being able to sign Block Party and you know things like that. But it was just like, Especially as like the first example, it felt very strange. So yeah, I, th- I think you're you're totally right, Eli. That to some extent, it was just like who did who does he know? Who does he have access to? And then from there, deciding you know how do I fit this into the power of broke? Again, I do think like the fundamental idea of the power of broke is a good one. I do think that 
there are a lot of bad ideas that are getting a ton of VC money and then just spending it all on advertising to grow when they don't necessarily have like a good product. And so that mentality of like, I need to like truly sell something valuable to customers and that's the way that I'm going to succeed is definitely one I would want to take uh, into you know any business I would want to found. But that being said, I think, yeah, we've kind of beat this, beat this horse to death or something, but uh, very inconsistent. Some of the, some of the examples were really great. Some of them were very weak. And I guess that's sort of the, the nature of the beast. Anytime you read books like this, where they feature a lot of different, you know, tales of success, sometimes they'll be really interesting and you'll, you'll definitely get a nugget of wisdom. And sometimes it's just, you know, someone that the author happened to know. Looking over the many stories in the book, were there some common strategies for overcoming being broke that you felt arose? So throughout the entire book, he focuses in on what he calls his key shark points. And so they are one, set a goal. So S, set a goal. H, do your homework. A, adore what you do. R, remember you are the brand. And K, keep swimming. I I don't necessarily love all of these, but I do think that they did resonate. They did come through repeatedly. I think the ones that that I uh, liked the most were the adore what you do and the keep swimming, because I do think that like knowing that this is like the business that you have to you know work in is like fairly important for success. There are certainly some people that manage to succeed in something that they're not necessarily passionate about, but I think it's going to be a lot easier if you really do love what it is that you're doing. And then the keep swimming, the sort of grit concept that, you know, all of these people, you know, suffered setbacks, but, you know, managed to overcome them and that no business is just going to be, you know, all straight up and to the right. I feel like he didn't necessarily sell that point as well as he did some of the others to, to the conversation we were having that it seemed like a lot more of it was just like cheering on the winners as opposed to like making clear that maybe these people had had, you know, struggles and, and failures along the way. But I do think that those those resonated for me and, and set a goal as well. I do think I, I actually did do that uh, as a result of this. I like wrote down some you know tangible goals and, and time for, for when I want them to be accomplished. Yeah, I think in my mind, I guess the keep swimming also really resonated but there, there was an element of it that also requires a lot of creativity. And I think some of the stories that he shared just showed how when you are constrained and when you really don't have many other options, you can be more creative. And I think we focused on that a little bit when we were talking about his founding of FUBU, that he really was creative in a few ways. One of the stories that I really liked was Rob Durdak, the skateboarder. And, you know, again, just a random story. Why is this in here? But the story that he started with was saying that he wanted to enter into a skateboarding competition and didn't have any money. So he went to the chairs of the competition and said, hey, if I get 10 of my friends to sign up, uh, can I get in for free? And they said yes. And the reason that resonated with me is because it was just this element of creativity when you don't have anything else. I took a class in business school uh, called Systematic Creativity, which is fabulous for me because I'm such an analytical person that the idea of being creative is incredibly intimidating. So this class was like, here's your bullet point list of how to be creative. And it like some elements of it actually worked or do work. And what it kind of said is that when you add more constraints, then you can be creative within that zone that cube that you're making. So for example, with this Rob Durdak, it was, okay, what do I have is confidence in my own skills. I end friends. I don't have any money. How can I use that to actually get into this competition and set myself up to win the competition and win the prize money, right? 
that was something that I think that there were a few examples throughout the book. I agree with you, Short, though, that he didn't highlight that point so much. It was more that you have to power through, but not thinking about how can you be creative in looking at the assets that you do have. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I really like that that Rob Deerdeck story as well. He was 11 at the time too. So it was kind of a cool, like, wow, I would not have been that much of a, you know, go-getter at that time in my life. I'm trying to remember what were some other examples. Uh, the Tim Ferriss story was actually pretty interesting because I, I listened to Tim's podcast and uh, have read some of his books and I I, I like him, but I, I didn't realize like how he had managed to get his publishing. And so, so apparently with Tim, he basically just showed up at the CES conference because he knew there were going to be a bunch of bloggers that would, you know, all be in, you know, one room given that it was CES. He didn't have tickets and he managed to like sneak into the blog house space, which was like a free drinks and Wi-Fi for for bloggers. And he just like was really helpful with the check-in lady and like went and got her the free drinks and was just being friendly. And then it turned out that she was actually married to Robert Scoble, who was an influential blogger at the time and like the main person that he wanted to pitch. And so he'd like basically hustled his way into being able to pitch like the, you know, most prominent blogger that he really wanted to be able to then, you know, sell his book through. And so that that one was kind of fun of just like Tim Ferriss just kind of like showing up at the conference, hustling his way through it um, and manages to have incredible success with his books and whatnot later on. And then he kind of followed that up with going to, to South by Southwest and he met the organizer and just told him, like, you know, I'll do anything for you, you know, but it, like, please, like, give me a spot. You know, he couldn't afford to pay, you know, whatever. I'm sure it's thousands of dollars normally that, you know, people sponsor things and then are, then are able to speak. But then someone fell through. And so at the last minute, he was able to get on the stage and do the pitch. And I think he said it actually didn't go that well. But, uh, you know, just it, it was it was fun to hear that, hear those stories of like, you have no resources. So like, what is it that you're able to do to try and, you know, spread your message? Yeah, I like the Tim Ferriss story a lot. My favorite entrepreneur story in the book was actually at the end, Mark Burnett the famous reality producer, reality show producer. He produced The Apprentice. He produced Survivor. He produced Shark Tank. And he really started from nothing. He was in the military in England. And then he um, ended up moving to LA to be a nanny. And while he was working as a nanny, he started working in an insurance business. And while he was working in the insurance business, he started selling t-shirts. And he got so good at selling t-shirts that he was making more money than he was in the insurance business or being a nanny. So he became a full-time t-shirt salesperson, but then he decided that it wasn't cool to be a t-shirt salesperson. And so then he took a kind of a lark job working on some kind of documentary film and that led to everything else. But he really like was somebody who scrambled at every corner and became arguably the most successful person other than maybe, I don't know, uh, Damon John himself and the Under Armour guy in the whole book through really the most unusual means. And so I, I found the Mark Burnett story very interesting. I'm wondering what were your favorite, if you had to just pick one of the many entrepreneurs in the book, what was your favorite entrepreneur in the book? So before that, I just want to add a little bit more color on the Mark Burnett story because I agree. I, th I thought it was really good and I just read it today. So it's uh, it's uh, close in my head. He actually, um, he licensed some like eco adventure brand that was in Costa Rica. And so he started doing these 300 mile kayak and run and whatever treks. And they managed to sell the rights to that to the Discovery Channel to do, you know, a, a documentary about this adventure. And then Discovery Channel wouldn't pay for a helicopter. And so he said he literally just put the helicopter rental on his credit card because he knew that he like he wanted to have 
the highest quality video and that like he claims that you know that's ultimately what turned into survivor effectively and so yeah you know again poor financial decision making but you know really really betting on yourself eli did did you have a, a favorite I think my, my first favorite was probably Moe's Bows, but my second that I don't think that we've talked about yet was Christopher Gray, who I guess also pitched on Shark Tank. So Kopech, I don't know if you remember that pitch, but mm-hmm. he's personally $1.3 million in college scholarships, recognized that over $100 million in scholarships go unclaimed every year. So he created this app. I don't know how it's pronounced, Scully or Schooly to help connect high schoolers with scholarships that they are applicable for and I think has this whole vision of how at that point then you can cross-sell and upsell once somebody is engaged in the app. And it seems it's have it's had in the book, they said more than 500,000 downloads of that app and everybody pays 99 cents for that app. I just thought that that, again, was another great example of somebody who was starting in the college process, not able to pay the application fees, uh, so really needed to go after it and find all of these scholarships and identifying that there was a real opportunity out there to better connect people with scholarships. It was, to me, a great story of personally why Christopher Gray was motivated in that area and then identifying that untapped market. Yeah, I thought that was a cool story too. I do remember the pitch. I think one of the criticisms of one of the other sharks was that it almost seemed like a charity business in the sense that this business model was never going to be able to return enough money on the investment that the sharks were making, but it still seemed like a good cause, obviously, and a business that would help a lot of students, obviously. But I could kind of agree with that shark. I very much doubt at 99 cents per person and you know Apple takes 30% of that that if the sharks were making a hundred or two hundred thousand dollar investment in this they were really going to make a very high return on the app in the end but it definitely was a, a great cause that Damon John got himself involved in yeah I, I like that one as well it just blew my mind that you could win 1.3 million dollars in scholarships and I guess I just still don't even know like is that just like you can only spend it on school so like you just like should go to like business school and then like law school or whatever like just the only way you can spend it is that way i don't know it, it it almost feels like like should he just return some of that money so that someone else can get it like i don't know it seemed a little bit weird i feel like i assume some of it was school specific right so some of it might have been like a full ride to one school so if he didn't go to that school then he didn't cash in on that scholarship yeah it has to be something like that and then i think the other thing we have to keep in mind is that the main work in doing this was just assembling all of the data into a database and sure you can have like a proprietary database that has this information about scholarships in it but all of that information originally is publicly accessible so there's really nothing that's super proprietary about what this person was doing again it felt like more like a good cause than it did like a great business yeah i would like to know how the cross selling and upselling model has been working for him i know so my brother at one point was involved in a startup that was focused on giving loans to uh grad students or helping grad students consolidate loans i guess is what it did and it was more on the expectation that if they're in grad school that's going to increase your earning power throughout your life. So then they can turn more into uh, financial advisors for those students. So there is certainly that vision of if you're making an investment with the 99 cent app and you're building brand loyalty, 
then maybe that's a place where people turn to in the future. I do agree, Kopak, with your point that other people can enter into that as well. And there's not exactly a large barrier to entry. So we've talked about what the power of broke is. We've talked about Damon John's story. We've talked about the stories of some of the entrepreneurs in the book. I'm wondering if there's anything else about the book that you think we've missed so far in our discussion. So uh, there was this concept around the stages of a brand that I thought were interesting. And so um, it's first it's an item, then it's a label, then it's a brand, and then it's a lifestyle. And so, yeah, I just, I, I found that to be like an interesting way to think about things that like everyone thinks that they have a brand or whatever, but actually you need to like kind of work yourself up to that point. And that a lot of things won't make it from brand to lifestyle that like FUBU definitely did do that to some extent that like it was like clearly something that, you know, had its sort of culture and, and an idea and like went beyond just like being a clothing label uh, in a way that, you know, most other clothing labels don't do that. But that again, like even if you have a brand, it doesn't mean you have a lifestyle. Even if, if just because you have something doesn't mean that it's really branded. I thought that was like a, a good framework for you know me to use in the future. I liked that too. I think what felt weird about that was, again, that it was just hidden in the book. So I think that was within the Nature Valley story that I had mentioned earlier. And in that Nature Valley story, so that new brand manager really focused in on promoting Nature Valley bars at ski resorts with the expectation that if they could focus in on a small, very affluent community, uh, that it would pay dividends in the future. And it seems that that was a success. I feel like I personally have had many a free Nature Valley bars at ski resorts and didn't realize that I was being specifically targeted for that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But and and I remember at that point in the book was when he introduced this item label brand lifestyle and the whole point being that if they were they were able to promote Nature Valley as a lifestyle at these ski resorts, it was so weird because he was like, now think about like your product. Are you marketing like the item or the label or the brand or the lifestyle? And I was like, wait, was I supposed to be having a product as I was reading this book? Like it just, it felt very interesting. I don't know, it, a, a bit again, out of place in terms of suddenly going really deep and having you like fill out a worksheet for your own product of how you're approaching it. But I did like the thought and I I hadn't really heard that idea before of how do you shift the mindset from a product into a lifestyle? Yeah. And then there was another concept he had around branding, which was that it should be defined in two to five words. Um, So he talked about it both like as as an individual, like you are the brand and you should be able to define yourself in two to five words. But then, you know, from a um, company perspective, he, you know, gave a lot of examples, you know, they tend to be kind of like the... um, I don't even know, like uh, taglines or whatever in advertising campaigns and whatnot. But like with Nike, it's just do it. With Apple, think different. Wheaties, breakfast of champions. The US is the land of the free. And I thought that was like a, an interesting concept, again, just in terms of branding, that like you need some like punchy, succinct way to tell people who you are, both just as an individual and as a brand. Yeah. And we mentioned this at the beginning, but I do think that his point of being authentic resonated throughout. So he started off with a sexist story, which he admitted was sexist, but you know, he didn't win points with me from the start of the book about being being authentic. And he didn't necessarily bring it up with each of the examples of the entrepreneurs as it went as it went through the book, but he I do think that that was a pretty common theme and I think he felt strongly that the success of Fubu was driven by being authentic. 
of course, Short mentioned earlier, and I felt this as well, that Damon John himself, I think, has subscribed a bit more to seeing himself as the brand. And if you go onto his website or if you're searching for him online, it feels like he's really controlled the narrative of his life and uh, projecting himself in a certain way that doesn't feel entirely authentic to me. So I, I think that there's a balance of being that brand, being he branded himself the people shark, but also being authentic. Uh, and I think that I saw two different sides of that throughout the book. What was the the sexist story at the beginning? So it, it was like in the intro chapter, I think, where he, he was basically like, well, if you're a if you're a man and like you're trying to get a woman, and you're like show up at her house with a nice car and you take her out to a nice dinner, like, you know, maybe you'll have her and you'll get her. But then like, what happens if you lose all your money? And then if you're a woman and you get dolled up all nice, and like you, you get your hair all done up. Then what happens when, you know, you're sick on your couch in your pajamas? <laughs> He's like, what is your relationship built on? Is it authentic? And I was like, what is, why are we starting this way? Oh, yeah, I remember that part. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you'd actually uh, texted us that you had some strong thoughts <laughs> as you were starting the starting the book. And so, yeah, I, I realized that was what you were talking about once I uh, once I started reading yeah. it a little bit later. Um, Eli, I know you listened to the the audiobook. Do you have any you know thoughts on that? Was it was it Damon John himself who was reading it? Yeah. So it was it was him and one other person who he alternated with. And what was actually interesting, I, I should look up the name of the other, the co-narrator. He introduced by saying that he wasn't going to read the whole book because he just wouldn't have a good voice for it. And he's dyslexic, which he goes into in the book as well. But then I actually felt like I liked the parts when he was speaking more. Obviously, it just feels a little more authentic when he's the one uh, reading from his own book and from his own experience. Definitely what you mentioned earlier, Short, with the shark tips, I did not get, I did not fully understand that until this morning, actually, when I just downloaded the Kindle book just to reread certain parts and prepare for this. Uh, it was the first time that I saw like those shark tips all in one box and like saw how it was set up in the book, which made it a little more accessible. In the audiobook, that wasn't as clear. So I, I think that skimming the book, there were definitely a lot of call out boxes and things that just made the audiobook a bit harder to listen to. So it feels like it would be an easier book to read than to listen to. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, actually, to be honest, I wasn't fully following the, sh the shark points. Until, like I had like it, it does clearly like say them all at some point early on. But I think I just I don't know, I, I wasn't reading it super consistently or something. And so I, I kept seeing like shark point and I, th I thought they were just like new things throughout. And then finally, I was like, oh, wait, this is the same one. And then I was like, oh, OK, so there's one for like each letter and shark. That's what's going on. I uh, was kind of embarrassed with myself for, for not having having noticed it until like pretty late in the book. There were also these like PowerPoints, not PowerPoints, I don't know what he called them, but they were sections in the book where he would cite a statistic and say how that statistic has been important to an entrepreneur's life. And I thought that they were actually some of the most interesting parts of the book, but unfortunately he didn't cite what the sources were for these statistics. So it was kind of like, okay, uh, are these real as I went through each of them? Anyway, we've talked a lot about the book. I want to know if you think the book is a good book overall. This is what it all comes down to. Do you recommend this book to our listeners? No, honestly, I, I don't recommend it. I think um, I'll definitely write up like a 
blog post on like the the takeaways that I had. I think there were some valuable insights from it, but I think we've largely covered them here and I don't think it's it's worth reading the the whole book. Yeah, I agree. I think it was written accessibly. There were some fun stories throughout, but I think we've covered them here. We probably stretched the learnings as much as we could from this. And overall, I was hoping probably for more about his life. Uh, And I think that, you know, he's written four books. There's more on FUBU to share and just some more, a more sequential history of FUBU and how he started that would have been interesting. Or just more on Shark Tank itself. I think either of that might have been a bit more interesting uh, than how this was set up. Yeah, I agree with both of you. I can't recommend it overall. It's too uneven. Too many of the entrepreneur stories are just not that interesting, or it's almost like, why were they included at all? I feel like if he had just focused more on his own story of the power of broke and a couple of the folks from Shark Tank and maybe a couple of the really high flyers that a lot of people are familiar with, like Tim Ferriss and Mark Burnett, it would have been a more interesting book overall. But as a whole, if I had to rate it on a scale of one to five, I'd give it like a three. There's some good insights there. There are some interesting stories, but it's just so uneven. So uh, before we wrap up, do either of you have any Power of Broke stories from your own life that you'd like to share? I do have a few, and I'm going to focus on one because it's probably the most significant. Right after I did my second startup, I'd been out in California, and I got really, really sick and physically sick. And I had to go back home to New York. And I was almost practically bedbound. And I started actually my consulting company while I was doing this because I was like, what can I do in this situation? Well, I can still program. Uh, maybe I can't join an in person company right now. And there wasn't a ton of remote work at that time. This is back in around the year 2012. But I can maybe start to do some online consulting. So I started that. And I also started writing my first book because suddenly I found myself with a ton of time that I couldn't really use in very many productive ways other than on my computer. And so I actually wrote a large part of my first book, Dart for Absolute Beginners, while being basically almost bedbound because that was one of the only things I could do. So I was able to really focus and I was able to really do what I think. I think it was a good book at the time. Uh, It's a little deprecated now if anyone checks it out. But yeah, I, I feel like that was me making use of everything that I could do rather than focusing on the things that I couldn't do. Wow, that's a really great story. Yeah, I think the one thing that I I thought of as well is my first year out of college, I was actually living and working in Rwanda, although working is maybe overstating. So I was volunteering over there and my housing and food was covered, but really not any living expenses. So I was in a place where I I did kind of need to hustle a little bit in order to have any kind of going out change for my time over there. So I I started writing for a travel blog while I was there. I I did start my own blog, um, which I like had ideas to monetize, although that didn't really work out. I didn't spend as much time with it as I probably should have. But it was definitely being in this situation of needing to find alternative sources of income and taking advantage of what I did have, which was being in kind of this remote area in Rwanda where a lot of people would actually want to hear about what is going on there and plan their own adventures to Rwanda. That's that's so cool. Yeah, I remember uh, reading your blog. It was fun to to hear about what was going on. And I, I feel like 
yeah, everything you you learn while you were in Rwanda has been really fascinating to hear about. We should, I don't know, find a book on Rwanda to read so we can hear we can hear more about uh, your adventures there. Eli, I didn't know you that well, but I actually read your blog too, so it was pretty awesome. See, maybe I should have monetized it. <laughs> if the if the audience got so st- so far as to many uh, students from our college, is it still online? It is. So actually, and as I mentioned at the start of this, I was living in Nigeria right up until COVID. So I was supposed to be there for a year and I had restarted my blog. I pre-wrote like 15 articles or something because I was really focused and I wanted to make sure that I would actually post like twice a week. So in my first few weeks there, I just wrote, spent all of my time writing because I didn't have any friends. And then COVID hit. So I have a bunch of articles that are pre-written that now I just can't post because they're not relevant and I'm not even in Nigeria anymore. Well, we'll have to link to it in the show notes so that other people can check it out as well. Uh, David, I'm not going to put you on the spot, but Eli and I both shared our Power of Broke stories. It's all on you now for your Power of Broke story. Yeah, I'm not sure if I really have one. I've kind of been a boring corporate worker, so I, I haven't you know, founded any companies. I guess one thing that I did do uh, that, that comes to mind is in college, one of my friends had started his own business. And so at the last minute, at one point, I was supposed to go back to school and uh, he offered me a job to, to help him out with uh, one of the products he was selling. And so I yeah, canceled going back to school like literally a week or two before I was supposed to return and moved in with him, like slept on the couch and uh, we worked on uh, this this Mac shareware deal called Mac Heist. You know, it was it was a really cool experience because, yeah, it was definitely a, a power of broke kind of moment. We didn't really have, you know, any resources. So it was it was all about getting the software developers to let us sell their software for free, basically. And then they, they would get, you know, some money for, for every sale that we made. But it was, you know, much less than they would they would normally sell it for. But we would get so many more sales than they normally had that it, it ended up making up, you know, most of their revenue for the year. And so um, it was, you know, a really cool experience where I got to, you know, negotiate directly with some of these software developers um, and sort of, you know, wear a million different hats because there were, you know, a total of maybe three people working on on this whole whole business. Um, so, yeah, that's probably the, the closest to a, a power of broke moment that I've had. You know, I was actually a consumer of Mac Heist, too. So I guess I was a consumer of both of your power of broke stories. And David, I actually think that's a really cool story. OK, so next month we're going to be reading... Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull. He was the longtime president of Pixar. It goes into a lot of detail about how Pixar was founded, and it also goes into the strategies they use to manage their creative teams and get this incredible output. I mean, Pixar was just the dominant animation film company in the late 1990s through to today. So I'm really excited about that. Before next month, though, a lot of listeners might want to get in touch with you. How can listeners get in touch with the two of you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at David G. Short, and I also have a, a blog where I'll end up posting my insights from this book, uh, productedpayments.com. And I'm also on Twitter, although not very active. Maybe I will get more active with this show, emitch46, and I guess we'll post in the show notes my blog so you can read my first few posts from Nigeria and Rwanda and other travels around the world. Awesome. And you can find me on Twitter at Dave Kopeck, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. Don't forget to like us on your podcast player of choice, whether that be liking us in Overcast or giving us a star rating in Apple Podcasts or liking us on Spotify or Google Podcasts. It really helps out with the show. And we'll see you next month.